only you as an entrepreneur, as a founder know if there's something there uh, which is worth carrying on. So I would always say put in those few extra months, even those few extra quarters, actually put in an extra year in the grand scheme of things, it will not matter at all. Hi, and welcome back to the Insights podcast series from Axel. I'm your host, Anand Daniel. Today, as my guest, I have the pleasure of welcoming Deep Kalra, co-founder and CEO of Make My Trip. Make My Trip is India's largest travel portal. Deep co-founded the company more than 18 years ago. In this podcast, he recounts his journey from those days all the way through to taking the company public at NASDAQ. Let's dive right in and learn from him. Deep, welcome to the podcast. It's it's a real pleasure to be here at Make My Trip in Delhi. It's and my pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So almost everyone in the audience, I'm guessing, should have booked through one of your platforms or the other. I'll be very upset if they have. <laughs> if not, that's the homework. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe we'll start out with the, the current scale of Make My Trip just for the audience. Where are you? Um, I guess different ways to measure scale, yeah. uh, but one of them obviously is a, I guess, a financial kind of uh, number. So since we're public, everything's out there yeah. as recent as the last quarter, which we reported. Yeah. Uh, so we are uh, trending on about six to seven billion uh, USD uh, this financial. Okay. So uh, uh, that that is where we'll be comfortably in terms of gross billing USD. Okay. Uh, and if you look at revenues, you can broadly take about ten percent of that. Got it. So I guess we'll be now a little over ten, actually closer to eleven, eleven, twelve. So I think we'll be about seven hundred million or so this year. Okay. Uh, in terms of revenues, yeah. This so is for that, the group. Yeah. This is for the group. group okay. Yeah. And so there is scale. And uh, what are all parts of the group? These are only our 100% owned entities. So okay. this is uh, Make My Trip, okay. which is our flagship company. Um, and then there's Goibibo, <laughs> which is a company that we got as part of a deal now two and a half years ago with Naspers. <laughs> and also Redbus, uh, which is Bangalore-based yeah. and a really wonderful company. Again, a startup out of India. And uh, so their second change in ownership. So this is what we count in the group. Then mm-hmm. we have multiple investments in other companies, but that's not counted. Perfect. We don't report those out because we're irrespective of the size of holding. Most of them are minority holdings. Got it. Uh, in terms of people, we are over 3,000 people. Uh, so, yeah. And in terms of age, we are now uh, a 19-year-old startup. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, so, across that group of companies, I'm sure you've touched most of the audience and millions and millions of people. So I want to rebi- rewind, this is aimed at first-time founders. I want sure. to start with your story, sure. Sure. maybe even before Make My Trip, where you yeah. grew up, a little bit about you. Yeah, sure, sure. And I should have also added one more. So yeah, more than 40 million people have bought from us. Wow. So if you look at the Indian context, uh, that's that's an important number, especially uh, I think it's relevant for uh, you know founders out there in the consumer space, because I think most people feel that Somewhere around 75 million people have bought something online in India. Uh, I mean, that number could vary. I think some people say it's it's another 10 million. Some say it's less 10 million. But about that number, so about 40 million have transacted. And obviously, we'd like many more to uh, buy from us. And we are constantly trying to acquire uh, uh, you know new customers, uh, give them a good experience, and then get them coming back, which I feel is for the right thing, which yeah. is they should come back for the experience. So. But uh, but coming to your question, uh, so I was born actually in Hyderabad. My mm-hmm. uh, dad was posted there at that point of time. Uh, but I grew up almost all of my adult life in Delhi. Okay. 
um, and I studied uh, both. I did schooling in Delhi, uh, St. Columbus School. I did my college from Delhi University, St. Stephen's College. I did economics uh, and then I did my MBA from IIM Ahmedabad. Yeah, I passed out in year 92. And thereafter, I worked with, for three years with a bank, with ABN Amro Bank, which was a young touch bank in India at that point of time, but growing fast, very exciting place to be. Uh, from there, I, I think at the end of close to you know three years, I was pretty clear, I don't want to be a banker all my life. Uh, so I actually brought in a company called EMF Bowling into India. I worked for this American company. They were a Virginia-based company, which was in the business of setting up bowling alleys and running them. And in India, we believed that there'll be a massive family entertainment boom. As the things turned out, it was far more muted than expected. And big Which learning was there. This? this was 95 to 99. So I ran that for four years. Uh, and, you know, the realization was a very important one that the cost of real estate in India, by and large, is not commensurate to what people are willing to pay for it. And mm. this was a very space intensive thing. Mm. So real estate businesses, you'll see very few do well. And those are those really high throughput kind of businesses. So I learned a good lesson, but mm. it was great fun. And it was actually entrepreneurial. So I learned a lot. Um, but I guess I felt I'm losing out on, um, uh, you know, uh, probably development uh, as a manager, as a career professional. And I joined GE Capital to get those inputs. Um, you know, GE gave me a very good role. Uh, I got a role as vice president of business development, which was pretty exciting. Uh, and I was introduced formally to the internet and which was something which was anyway happening in 99. It started happening out here in India. Mm -hmm. And the more I got into it, uh, I think the more I was convinced that this is going to change our lives uh, in a very significant manner. So finally, in uh, April 2000, I took the plunge and I uh, basically started make my trip. God, awesome. I want to come into the starting story. But before that, anything from your formative years that... Uh, made you want to be an entrepreneur or anything? You know, it's interesting. Only when you look back and you connect the dots, yeah. maybe you feel some of these things. Yeah. But my dad was in private sector. He was in uh, in service all his life. My mom was a uh, school teacher almost all her uh, working life. Uh, so it could have come from the grandparents. Uh, both my grandfathers were businessmen. Okay. Uh, so... Who knows? But um, I, I, I think for me, it was more an understanding of uh, I think doing my own thing was exciting. But more important was, um, I think, not getting caught up in the big company kind of syndrome, which I saw. Because then in big companies, very often, uh, uh, you know, you do tend to spend a fair degree of time unproductively. Mm -hmm. You're at work. It's not like you're goofing off. And for me, that seemed very strange. Mm. Uh, and I saw that. But uh, so I, I don't, I think the calling was both for the internet. And I was convinced that an internet business will probably only succeed in uh, a startup kind of organization, not in a large company, because then it's only a side project. It's, it's kind of something which is also there, but your bread and butter is coming from your main business. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, I saw that and I said, listen, this has got to be the only thing you do to make a change. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it happened to me more than anything else. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I consciously thought about being an entrepreneur till really way down in my career. Till when the opportunity came and then you saw the internet, how did you pick the uh, 
uh, travel would. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah. I thought of a couple of things. Firstly, I thought B2C. Mm. And B2C was something I could relate to. So I think there was the marketeer in me and I was clearly very keen on connecting directly with consumers. So that was clear. Um, I looked at various kind of opportunities and, you know, way back where a lot of our young founders were probably literally, I think, in, in their born. diapers. Or <laughs> well, 19 years ago, yeah, some of them not born, that's true. Yeah, but yeah. but most of them probably born, but just about, you know, getting into school or whatever. Because yeah. we're talking about, I'm assuming most folks listening in are in their 20s. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have foggy memories, but that was the time... I think a lot of them firstly were born on the internet. But if I hark back to 19 years ago, I just looked at businesses which were being conducted on the phone primarily mm. uh, and not physically. And on I, the phone as in phone call? Phone call. Yeah. And I assume that's right. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> Let's see. That's a really good point. Yeah. So not on the mobile phone, not yeah. on an app, but on a phone yeah. call. Yeah. And, um, you know, you had to call up and get it done. I figured those will be the ones that could move more uh easily uh, online. Mm -hmm. So I had two plans in mind. One was online stockbroking mm. because that was pretty much the same thing. And you'll remember we would call up our broker and we'd uh, do our research in the morning and we'd say, okay, I want to buy this stock and you tell him buy 2000 off whatever and uh, or sell so and so. And then settlement once a week or every time you did a trade, he would send his runner to you to sign some forms mm -hmm. and to give him a check. And that's how it worked. That was the system of stockbroking. And so I figured that is ripe for moving online mm -hmm. and so much more powerful. I did look at um, E-Trade as a model and that seemed pretty exciting. And then online travel, because if you think about it, travel at that point of time, you called your agent, you said, I want to book this, I want to go to Bangalore from Delhi. And you say, these are the flights, or I want to go from Delhi to London. And then I also need a hotel. And he would give you some options, it would take a long time, and you'd finally conclude and you'd again send a check to him or someone would come and pick it up. So I figured these businesses will move quicker. Um, I also thought that online stockbroking probably belonged in a stable of a large a financial house eventually, so a bank or someone. Mm -hmm. That's what my reasoning was. And maybe if you look at ICICI Direct and all, that's the way it's gone. But online travel, I figured, could be a truly entrepreneurial thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what attracted me to it. The other part that attracted me was travel was just so much more fun. And uh, I'd always been a fond traveler, uh, always. And for that, I uh, definitely, I think my parents uh, kind of sowed those seeds. They would take us every summer driving to some holiday, some new place. And it was great because you would uh, see North India, you would see other parts of India like that. And it was, I guess, so. and then um, uh, my wife too uh, was probably even a bigger traveler than I am and has a bigger travel bug than I do. So literally can come back from a trip and leave the next day for another trip and whereas I like my downtime. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that really helped because uh, both of us together, I think we really traveled as much as we could before the kids, even with the kids. And so I think, yeah, travel was something which just seemed like a lot of fun and, and it hasn't disappointed. God, that's that's great. And then you looks like you were married at that time. How did, how was your wife working or how did you guys think about that? That's something that uh, founders, when they go through the initial phase, especially the bootstrapping, did you raise funds? I'm guessing at that time, you bootstrap for some time? Yeah, so uh, 
yeah, I was married in '95, yeah. uh, and we had our first uh, child in '99, okay. and then our second one in 2001. And as I say, make my trip was in 2000, so yeah. literally I had three it, kids in three years. Wow. Okay. So. Um, it was a tough time because early stage, one managed to get actually early stage funding from someone called eVentures, but then the dot-com bust happened mm. and we had to actually buy back the company. So from 2001 to 2005, we had to either shut down or buy back. Yeah. And I think this is, while I think it's been written to death, but for those who haven't heard it, I think it's really important. <laughs> In a very odd sort of way, uh, t- those four tough years were the best years uh, ever hmm. and they were the best years ever because we were really tested in terms of uh, not only our belief in the business you can be stubborn and you can believe but how to find the model that can stand on its own can can have feet and I think that's very important for any business and so that tested us during that period to say that listen is there a viable model out here uh, given that you're not going to get funding this is post dot com bus mm-hmm. no one even you know dot com was a bad name Mm -hmm. so you weren't going to get any external funding you had to make do with what you had after a couple of years we got one angel who uh, I think uh, found us interesting and put in a little bit of money and literally a little bit Mm -hmm. $150,000 and then in in 2004 another one put in another you know about the same amount but till that time uh, especially the two years of 2001 to 2003 were constantly uh, hand-to-mouth struggle uh, never did we have more than two, three months of runway in terms of all expenses, salary, um, rent, etc. But yet we managed to keep going. And I think what kept going was the fact that what kept us going was the fact that we were very clear that we had to, on a variable cost basis, we had to recover all costs. Okay. So when we talk about unit economics now, I really think that's an important lesson where Whatever you do, irrespective of the kind of business, you should not be losing money on a variable cost basis. Mm. So just to explain that further, not for your benefit because you know this, but many many folks out there, uh, your fixed cost can be amortized. And therefore, as you get scale, you can get that going. And your fixed cost can even be a degree of branding. But if you're giving discounts or this is your cost of goods um, on on anything sold, then you must take that into account, whatever business you're in. And as I say, even if you make one rupee on a transaction, it's fine because Mm -hmm. when you do a million transactions a day, as people are doing today, you're making a million rupees a day, which is 10 lakhs a day, which is not bad. So that's the way to think about it. So you have to really re-engineer costs Look at what you can make so that you are not only break even but slightly positive. At the gross that's a really margin, important yeah. lesson. Yeah. yeah, it's a really at variable cost basis. Yeah. I think that's very important. Yeah. And this you focused on right from early days. Uh, we didn't have a choice. Yeah. So in <laughs> fact, we had to be fully loaded profitable. Yeah. So yeah. that was even different when you don't have a choice. Uh, necessity indeed is the mother of uh, invention. And, uh, you know, you don't have money, you don't have any other source, you have to do that. Either you survive or you pack up and you go home. Mm -hmm. And that was always looming, by the way. It's Mm -hmm. really true. It was always, that sword was always looming on our head. And I remember, uh, you know, three of us chatting, uh, two of my early joinees who were invaluable to the company became co-founders. And we would discuss and say, listen, guys, this is, you know, is this even happening? And, you know, it became a very vicious kind of circle. 
that you'd dwell in it and you'd feel bad and you'd you know your mood would reflect on the others and everyone sat in a tiny space really and we by the way worked in a real estate which was 11 to 12 rupees a square foot and it doesn't get cheaper than that it was a mezzanine where uh, the the height was 8 feet so you could touch the ceiling if you swung both ways you could touch the sides <laughs> it was really tiny yeah. but but we made a rule and we actually said listen we are not going to talk about shutdown mm more than once a month. Mm. But once a month, we will review the month and we will discuss what we want to do. But if you are in it, let's get in for the month. Mm. And this is something which I thought really put some discipline in the way we were going. And mm. we at least had that discipline. Okay, now March, we are in for March. Mm. March 31st, we'll shut books. By April 1st, 2nd, 3rd, whenever we're ready, we'll take stock of cash, where we are going, we'll look at conversion, we'll look at everything else. But in March, we're now not going to have uh, depressive talks about should we pack up. Mm. Because otherwise, that became a really vicious circle. And I would encourage a lot of people to put up that discipline. If you're going through a tough time, I always say, eke it out a little longer. No great company has been built you know, very quickly. It takes time. I have people who leave the company even today and they say, we want to turn entrepreneur, mm -hmm. tell us one thing. And that one thing for me, from me is always, listen guys, don't look back for the first four to five years. It takes time to set up a decent company in India and probably 10 years to become something. Mm -hmm. So be patient. And so if you feel things are going bad, you know, here's the downside of having a high opportunity cost, which means you've got great education, you're from a top engineering school or a top MBA school or both, you know you can get a great job or you had a great job and so you're always thinking, is this worth it? There are a lot of people telling you this is crazy and we've all been through that. And some of my closest friends told me this is crazy, but it's not like I'm, I'm still very close friends with them, but they meant well. But only you as an entrepreneur, as a founder know if there's something there uh, which is worth carrying on. So I would always say put in those few extra months, even those few extra quarters, actually put in an extra year in the grand scheme of things, it will not matter at all. Like no one, no one really says or counts at what age did so-and-so make this great company. It's mm -hmm. immaterial. I mean, and whether you made it two years here or there, how does it matter? But you made built a great company that you're proud of, a durable company. So I would really encourage founders to, once you're onto something, tweak, Pivot, uh, keep your ears to the ground, pick up messages, do the right thing. But at the first sign of winter, do not pack up. Mm. Because you really, it'll, it takes a lot of courage to do it all over again. You probably won't do it all over again. Mm. If you were to do it all over again, it's better to pivot now. Because the one thing you have then is A, you're in the zone. B, you have a team. So if you can sell the new story to the team, you're really, that's one of the toughest things to do. But if you pack up and you go back to corporate life or something else, you try to do it again, it takes a lot of courage and yeah. most more likely than not doesn't happen. Yeah. And during this phase, you, you had co-founders at that time or how? Yeah, it's a really interesting story and I'm glad you asked it. So I was foolish enough to start alone. Mm. Okay. And this is age, I guess, uh, when you're 30 and you believe that you can kind of conquer the world alone. And, and I wasn't even a... Um, you know, an engineer, I didn't know computer programming except what I'd learned in school, mm -hmm. basic programming. So it was quite foolish if you look in hindsight. I wasn't even a travel professional. But I think the MBA does arm you with one thing that, listen, however unique or new a problem, you can break it down into something which you can kind of take in a structured manner. So I went about it, but I was very fortunate to come across not one, two, but actually three great individuals along the journey. 
uh, all of them who in the downturn stuck by the company, supported the company and rightfully became co-founders. It's not like, you know, just gave them the title. They actually sacrificed a big chunk of their own salaries, financials, invested in the company as angels and uh, probably put in as much as me in the company, if not more at times. And I was very happy to make them co-founders. They were very happy. I think that was what they truly were. So uh, right from Kayur, who's still an advisor to the company, still has stock in the company. Uh, Kayur Joshi, Sachin Bhatia, who had worked with me in the past, but then uh, uh, Sachin came here and he was uh, uh, head of marketing to start with and looking at many other things and now has become a serial entrepreneur. So after that, he launched Truly Madly and now he's launched Bull Bull mm-hmm. and he's doing quite well. And then finally, Rajesh Mago. Rajesh is uh, now CEO of the company, uh, running the company on a day-to-day basis. And uh, I don't think this company would be half the company without him. He's really the scale guy. And uh, so again, very lucky to have these people. And if I can take a little bit of credit, smart enough to hold on to them because it's very difficult to find. Uh, So I actually, in a weird sort of way, got to choose my Mm co-founders, which doesn't always happen. You know, you start together with someone and then as the company scales up, you realize some scale and some don't. But here I got the benefit of seeing them actually scale. It wasn't planned that way. And uh, in hindsight, uh, I would... If I was to do it all over again, I would definitely start with one co-founder. Uh, so At two. least, yeah. Uh, actually, I think that's the optimal number. Yeah, optimal. It would be great to have two of us yeah. with complementary skills. Okay. So if I was the business guy, then the other person would be the tech person. If the other person, if I was the tech person, and which I would love to be the product and tech person, because my heart is clearly in product, then the other person could uh, could be the business person, and then you build the team. I think it's great to have a sounding board. Um, Three sometimes can be a crowd and can have its own dynamics. I've seen enough. So two, I think, is a great number. Great. Okay. This this is very good advice. So let's uh, wind the clock forward. You stuck it out through the tough period and then walk us through from there to all the way to going public. Right. So that's it. Yeah. So like I said, and, uh, you know, I think 2000 to 2001 was a fairy tale. Yeah. Got early stage funding on a business plan, literally, uh, Deal signed on a paper napkin, truly, yeah. in Crossroad Mall in Bombay with Neeraj Bhargav of eVentures. Became a good friend after that. and But soft, uh, eVentures decided to pack up and their LPs, which was SoftBank and NewsCorp, said that, listen, we're getting out of all internet businesses in emerging markets. And they they basically said, either shut down or buy us back. And so we did a... This was uh, the... Post the meltdown, yeah. yeah. So we did a, in 2001, and also 9-11 happened. That yeah. really hampered us. Also SARS, so travel was hit also. Yeah. So, uh, and then two of the other gentlemen from eVentures, Sandeep Singhal, who's now at Nexus, and Anoop Gupta, both of them also became angels in our company, and they invested, they believed in us. So I think that was great because they saw, I think, the not just the passion, but they saw that we are onto something. 2001 to 2005 were tough years, struggle years, but great because they tested our metal. They really, really tested it. Like, uh, is it onto something? We focused almost entirely on the non-resident Indian market out of the US at that time. We were in India, but we realized people aren't ready to buy in India. Mm. And there's a big lesson there. So I really think probably one of the smartest decisions we ever made was to shut down all marketing, stop all marketing in India. We kept the site going rather than 
investing more, trying to make it happen. And, you know, these were days when discounting and all was not par for the course. Like mm -hmm. today you say, pour in more money, it'll happen. No, you never went below cost, etc. But people weren't ready to buy online because they didn't trust the medium. So they fundamentally believed um, they'll do a lot of research online. Then they'll call up the travel agent and say, I'm on internet, pe ye mil hai. Mm. you know, that kind of thing. And this is the price I'm getting on the yeah. internet. Can you match this or can you do better? And travel agents would better it because A, they had a lower cost of operation. B, they saw this new beast kind of eating into their uh, business. Uh, but... U.S. India, on the other hand, people, the NRIs based in the U.S. were happy to buy online because they were already used to it. Mm -hmm. And that work and that conversion had already, evangelizing, had already been done by um, Expedia or by Amazon, etc. in the U.S. So we looked at numbers. We said, India, lots of lookers, very few bookers, mm -hmm. very poor conversion rate. U.S., great conversion rate mm -hmm. and we'd be silly not to focus on the US. So we said, listen, we're just going to now focus on the US India market, smaller market, 3 million NRIs, but ready to buy and a high value ticket purchase. Mm -hmm. That honestly kept our fires burning and kept us alive till 2005. When we noticed that something had changed in India, what had changed in India was a people had started buying something online and I have to give a lot of credit to IRCTC because mm -hmm. IRCTC gave people the confidence that it's safe to buy online. Uh, being a government enterprise, there was trust. Also, the reality was that the alternative was very painful because the alternative was to line up at a railway station yeah. and buy tickets. Again, yeah. something which young people won't know out there, but it was a really painful experience. You'd reach the end of the queue after half an hour, 45 minutes, and you'd realize there were no tickets on the train you wanted. If mm -hmm. you sent someone, they couldn't call you. There were no mobile phones. So IRCTC got people comfortable that it's safe to buy online. And the advent of low-cost carriers gave us a very interesting play with technology to explain. Basically, low-cost carriers like Air Deccan, who was first of the block, was advertising 99 rupees Bangalore, Delhi, or 999 Delhi, Bombay. And you're saying, wow, I want this fare. You called up your travel agent and said, I want this. And you never got it. And the reason you didn't get it, Ava, there were very few seats available on that. Secondly, the travel agent had no incentive to sell a low-cost carrier because he or she didn't make a commission on them. More than not making a commission, they could have charged a little bit of a service fee. Mm -hmm. If they went ahead and purchased the ticket and you changed your mind, that money was sunk because it was instant ticketing, zero refund, no refund as we all know on low-cost carriers. So that for us presented a very interesting opportunity to build with technology, direct connects with all of the low-cost carriers. So when you put in a request, Bangalore, Delhi, Bangalore, we opened multiple threads at the back end, one with every low-cost carrier. We had already built the direct connect, which took time. And one with the GDS, which is Amadeus or Sabre or uh, Travelport, which would bring us all the full-service carrier content. Mm. And we would fetch all of this in real time. Of course, there'd be a degree of caching and it got better and better. So you get, you know, lightning fast responses now. But that could only be solved with technology. And now if the customer wanted that fare, you put the credit card. If the customer wanted, uh, you know, in-flight entertainment, the good old days of Kingfisher, you paid 2,000 rupee more. If the customer wanted to save 1,000 rupee and take a flight at, you know, 1 a.m. in the morning, it was there. But you made an informed decision. Mm. So fundamentally what we did was we put the customer in control. 
and that had never happened before that was the first time ever the customer was in control it was a heady feeling because even when you went to your travel agent and you sat with him or her and you said this booking they were on a cryptic screen that green and black screen you didn't know what was happening mm-hmm. so they could say this is not available but it is available so i think that shifted and changed the paradigm forever and really was a uh, a game changer and people loved it it was well received so 2005 we really really hit the ground i think running and really took off from um, uh, you know a small profit uh, focused company in the us to a fast growing company in india to give you an idea we were when we launched in india we were about 30 million in revenues and 2010 we raced ahead when we ipoed we were uh, sorry 30 million in gross booking we were about 500 to 600 million gross booking so we grew 20x in those 5 years and uh, profitable again uh, we had three quarters of profitability when we went for ipo we stayed profitable for a couple of years till kingfisher went bust then we realized we were too exposed to the air model we very consciously built in a hotel product and a holidays product and today if you look at us we are now only 34% of our revenues come from air and more than 50% of our revenues come from the accommodation product and very consciously we've built that so yeah it's been quite a journey wow uh, post ipo there's been mna i i already mentioned go ibibo and redbus but there's also been a significant number of investments in travel technology companies like an exigo like a holiday iq like an inspirock like a simplotel and wherever we find these companies are really uh, good on uh, travel technology and are bringing something else to the table which we don't have uh, we are quite happy to go ahead and make an investment there got it wow that's a that's a long journey so i want to focus on one portion because you're the first person who's gone through that journey in our podcast right so um, um this is the ipo side yeah. so i want to focus on one portion of that journey which is going public yeah right very few people in india have gone through that journey yeah. uh, for the founders listening maybe walk us through that process how do you think through it and we'll start with that yeah yeah, yeah. no I, i i think it's truly something uh, special for any founder and especially of a fast growth company um there are various other ways of uh, i guess uh, looking at uh giving a return to your investors i mean the first thing i'd like the founders to know is that the moment you take venture capital or institutional capital um uh, even angels expect a return but the moment you take institutional capital please be very clear that there is a return expectation uh it what matters is only how long some people are very patient it could be 7 to 10 years some people are looking at return at 5 to 7 years but there's an expectation now how will you give that return you will either have a sale event which is a liquidity event for the company or you will have some other investor come and buy out the first investors but then that new investor also needs a return or you could look at an ipo now private markets were not quite as deep as they are now way back in 2010 so it was very hard at that point to actually get a large company large investor come in and give a return out here and in fact if private markets were that deep we could have continued being private and taken further round we took uh, four rounds of institutional investment uh, 2005 onwards with safe partners who was our first investor and carried on post ipo and probably uh, one of the uh, really best uh, safe partners one of the best investors possible we had a great relationship with them then we had helion and sierra come in in 2006 and again an awesome relationship in fact from sierra ventures tim gulleri continues to be on our board as an independent even today and we've actually asked him to stay on 
and he's kindly kind of uh, accepted that. And then we had Tiger Global come in with Lee in uh, 2008 and 2009. So I think we had a really great set of investors. Uh, we got very lucky and we built good credibility with them. It's a two-way street. And then I remember we were, I also built a board of independence. So we had Sanjeev Bikchandani on our board. Uh, everyone should know him from InfoEdge. Uh, and we had uh, two other independents, Philip Wolf and Frederick Lalonde, both uh, based in the US. And we were in a meeting in 2009 when um, uh, it was, uh, I think, Sanjeev who said that, listen, you guys now should think about going public. And we were really taken aback said, really, already? He says, yeah, this is the kind of scale where we looked at it. InfoEdge was already public with uh, Nokri. And you should look at it and examine it with your bankers, etc. He said, we don't have bankers. So we first went about getting bankers. We went with Morgan Stanley. Then we examined it. And it looked like, yeah, in a year or so, we could IPO. And he said, uh, then the question was, where to IPO in India or, or US? Because our, we were holding company was in Mauritius. And uh, the board was split. There were people who were very keen on an India listing. There were people very keen on a US listing. And I was thoroughly confused. So I requested the board that give me five days and let me a week. Let me talk to people. Let me come back. And I actually spoke to a bunch of people who had had experience in listing in India overseas both. So right from Mondas Pai, who had taken Infosys public, who was very kind of gracious with his time. And uh, to a classmate of mine, Pulak, who had been on the Bharti board when they had gone public. Uh, multiple people, actually, who had experience again in different markets, Ajit Balakrishna from Redev, etc. And I came to the conclusion that the Indian market is not quite ready for an internet company to go public. Again, InfoEdge might have been a, a, you know, a unique company in that sense, B2B in the way they collected money, but B2C in the service they gave. And a profitable company. And this model, I think, in India wasn't ready to be accepted. However, the U.S. had seen a lot of U.S. companies and international companies, particularly Chinese, come and list in U.S. So there was an understanding among the investor base. So we decided to go public in the U.S. And we were a little, people got us a little wary and scared that it'll take very long. It's very onerous. The stocks compliance is very expensive, etc. But I have to tell you, it's one of the most exhilarating processes. So it took us actually just about six months. February was our kickoff meeting. And in August, we were ready. We actually IPO'd on August uh, 11th. So it didn't take that long to go ahead and list. But that six months were frenetic. I think the auditors, KPMG, li literally lived in our office. The bankers, the lawyers, we were all working as a well-oiled team. Again, full credit to CFO. Rajesh was the CFO at that point of time. And to make it happen, and then we sold our story over a two-week uh, roadshow. Uh, we started in Singapore, went to Hong Kong, then went to the U.S. all across. And I think the story was very well received as, uh, you know, India being an emerging market, uh, not just for uh, travel, but for everything, more disposable income, people ready to spend, and us being the market leader. So I think it, it really uh, resonated well. We had a great IPO. We were looking to raise just $70 million plus green shoe became $80 million. That's how modest uh, IPO raise was. Our total valuation was $450 million. But uh, on day one of close, so firstly, we managed to raise over a billion. Mm -hmm. So we had more than 15x of what was expected. And there you can allocate the pot as to say. So that's an exciting process. Whichever investors you like, you can also revise the price if you want to. 
which we didn't as as good decent uh, indian boys we decided <laughs> we are going to keep the price at 14 dollars but at the end of day 1 we were already close to a billion dollar company uh, and we appreciated 90% on day 1 itself so it was quite a heady feeling uh, it is onerous uh, every quarter you do have to uh, talk to your analysts talk to your investors uh, a good cfo of course takes a lot of the burden but they expect to get access to management we would do a lot of physical road shows in the first 5 years i think every quarter we were out there in front of investors which was pretty tiring uh now we split it around uh between rajesh rcf or mohit and myself we split up the responsibilities but um i think it's a process and you know if you are sure that you're running a a, a good company where your processes are tight and you're reporting uh, you're in good shape uh i there's nothing which can't be you know that then the us is looking for those kind of companies yes there's a lot of compliance but that's good i i've always seen that as being a positive which keeps you honest and keeps the company really tight so i think uh, it's been one of the better decisions there've been ups and downs i mean you know we're uh, on the on the stock market as a lot of them macro but i think at the end of the day the return that it has given AR um, well even before our investors even though i'm talking to an investor i have to say my first was we had a very deep esop plan when we ipoed almost 70% of the company was covered by esop which is something i really wanted so a lot of people at make my trip created you know wealth for themselves and mm. first time ever and they deserved every penny of it being here with the ipo so for me that was very fulfilling mm-hmm. i think as a founder i think that's actually the most fulfilling thing uh and next our shareholders got handsome returns and thirdly you could now access the public markets raise money you had currency which was you know valuable which you could use your stock as currency you could really leverage and do a lot more also places you in a very different peer group mm-hmm. uh with some of the biggest uh online travel companies in the world so we are now in the same peer group the moment we listed as uh booking.com expedia c trip and and you know it's a hallowed group your learning is much more so i i would recommend that to any entrepreneur who is interested in building a durable company uh and and you know not looking to sell but there are people if you choose to sell the company there's nothing wrong with that it's a very personal preference thing and i believe that ipo time the best is yet to come i believe 9 years post ipo the best is still yet to come so as an for make my as, trip. yeah for yeah, make my trip as an entrepreneur i guess one is always optimistic but i really think the best the foundation has been laid but india is just about now opening up in a much more significant manner tier 1 is open tier 2 tier 3 youngsters now have grown up on the internet mobile apps are omnipresent online payments are so easy so i think uh, what's going to happen going forward is just something which we haven't even uh, Uh, you know fathom and also if you look at travel and you look at airports and you look at oda you know every corner of the country being connected now the prime minister has uh, told everyone please travel more please mm-hmm. do 15 trips over the next 3 years so i think we are clearly a country on the move and uh, being well positioned as the market leader there you get the maximum to gain so yeah it's a great feeling to be that's part. awesome so i want to switch gears and for the last 5 minutes I want to chat about your advice to the next generation actually one question from one of the audience paritosh sharma was all the maturity and world view that you've gained over the years what are the top lessons that you'd like to share personally yeah. mentoring the next generation i think that's a good 
question to yeah. start out the section. No, I like this question because it basically means listen, I don't want to listen to the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Just give me the executive summary. So, he's a good entrepreneur, very efficient on time. But no, jokes apart. Um I think I shared some of them already, but I'll recap it. Yeah. I think the first one is uh, really you've got to be have the patience of a monk. you're not going to build a great company overnight mm-hmm. so if you want to build a great company please be patient please put in that extra year or more it won't matter if you're impatient you can be impatient when you want a project to be delivered you can be impatient when you want a new feature to be launched and you should be but be patient overall because things great things take time they're not built overnight so i think that's really important secondly i say this to my own team all the time please don't focus on being the largest if you focus on being the largest you fall into a trap of vanity metrics now all kinds of vanity metrics exist irrespective of whichever industry you're in you can just start chasing you know cross bookings and gmv and all of that kind of stuff it's not the right metric the right metric to focus on is being the best be the best when it comes to the customer be the best when it comes to customer choice preference and therefore retention you focus on the right metric which for me the most important metric is repeat repeat without discounts is one of the most important metrics and if you start getting people to come back for the right reason which is the experience that you gave them on your platforms online offline wherever it could be a coffee shop it's as simple as that it could be someone who you know manufactures uh, office furniture and yes you don't change it every year but that architect who places the order the contractor they've figured out at the right price point who's the one making the right office chair and it's a great business to be in or it could be an online platform of food delivery or of uh, uh, you know travel like we do or anything else but if people are not coming back on their own there's something wrong if your retention ratio is poor then there's something wrong you got to do a lot of work you got to double down um i guess fourthly another very big metric in our business and again can be transponded to almost all businesses is the holy grail of conversion i think your conversion funnel is really your holy grail and you like an as an entrepreneur you got to watch it like a hawk and every step of the funnel is important not just how many people you advertise you got people coming up to your platform coming onto your platform fine did they go to next stage how many dropped off some will drop off did they go to the next stage whatever you call it we call it listing page and review page and payment page and thank you page it could be a five step funnel for you a three step funnel what are they doing you know for someone who's uh, not really at e-commerce right now but a media business is the engagement improving how much time are people really spending are they participating have you got user generated going have you really created a virtuous cycle out there people talk about two sided networks is that is that really happening i think those are the kind of metrics you want to have for everyone and the by product will become size mm. but the the by product should not be that and probably the last one and i i think everyone talks about it but people still don't give enough give enough importance is to the value of the team not just your founding team but the fact that the founding team is critical and the toughest thing to do is to go from 0 to 1 mm. 1 to 10 is actually easier and 10 to 100 is even easier that's the good news 0 to 1 means to set up a viable business something's happening out there and as you actually grow the company scales but the team also needs to morph 
and you have to accept that and not everyone will scale up at the same level so there'll be people who'll scale up as fast as the company and even faster great but there'll be many people who will not be able to scale up personally as fast as the company in that case how you handle that and how you bring in the new talent and what you do with the people who haven't scaled up but they're still very good at startup can you still give them something startupish to do that becomes the tag so willy nilly uh, entrepreneur has to become a very good manager very good general manager very good at hr willy nilly that's your job so you can have people to come into hr but let me tell you at the senior most level yeah. that's that's actually uh, as strategic as anything else you do because very few people have done it alone mm. uh, even jan kum who i consider one of the best founders ever and launched whatsapp with 42 people needed 42 people so there were 41 other people besides jan doing that and that's the reality so most of the other companies which were great were even bigger and that just shows you need people and you need a core team around you and so you can be an iconic leader which is great but how you marshal your troops how you motivate them how you get the right team and then how you get everyone to focus on the goal that's your job as an entrepreneur so i think never forget that and and in that particular one one aspect is getting the team and the other is adjusting it as they scale right any tips on that like you you yeah, may, touched upon it yeah no i don't i'm big believer that it's horses for courses yeah and uh, you know different stages of the company do need different skill sets and it doesn't mean everything changes like i said some people will scale up that's great hopefully you will scale up as a founder and others will scale up <laughs> but they definitely if you have a team of 10 uh, direct reports it's very likely only 5 will scale and 5 won't and maybe 10 is even a large number because when you start you probably have 4 or 5 mm. two or three might scale up two or three won't scale up how do you handle people who don't scale up it doesn't mean that you have to ask them to go it means you can give them different roles and in some cases you have to ask them to go after 5 years how do you handle that with tact with um, you know dignity and done in a proper manner and that's pretty much what you have to do because the the you know litmus test for you is really what's right for the company and so you've got to be very dispassionate about that what does the company need can the company do better and this link to this is the value of having advisors and a good board and if you can't get people onto the board because you know there are other issues people have around board but have some advisors who you can share everything threadbare this is happening in the company this is what's going on you can and get some advice finally you got to take the call but i think it really helps to have a sounding board get different but this is super helpful last question i'm going back to the ipo story and yeah. you believe that there's going to be a lot more of these coming in the years to come so for the founders who are listening and hopefully thinking about that what are the things that need they need to focus on today or for their business over the yeah. next 2 3 yeah. years yeah. if they want to go public yeah and i i really hope many more will go public yeah. i think it's good for the market and yes. it has a ripple effect for sure and i think the indian markets are also definitely opening up and even sebi has been changing rules making it easier to list etc and you know even dvrs and many things are happening which is really good for the market i i think fundamentally you got to build for scale which is that you're not building just enough to ipo the ipo is not a end goal the ipo is not a summit it is in mount everest mm. the ipo is base camp and that's the right metaphor it's really base camp in climbing and mm. base camp means you've got somewhere it's a important place that you've reached but now you go ahead for so it actually gives you the ability to do much more 
but it's not an end in itself for the founder mm. you can take some chips off the table which is a good thing to do nothing wrong with that but you fundamentally have now got a lot more fuel and you are now a company in the public domain a mature company you have the ability you raise cash you can raise more cash you can you know do and that's what your investors expect you to do and anyone a retail investor can buy 100 shares in your company or one comp- one or one share or someone can come and buy 10% in your company if they want to so you can do a lot more so i think entrepreneurs have to keep that in mind that i've reached here this is a very important um, you know level that we have reached a stage in the company's life but now this is only setting the stage for the next level to go to so i think that's really important as you think about ipo so i would encourage all entrepreneurs when they are deliberating an ipo to ask themselves a very um you know odd sounding question but really why do you want to ipo mm. you know one of my uh, board members had asked me that question and i had found it very odd like what a question to ask but it was actually a very profound question it's a really profound question why do you want to ipo which is you want an exit for self probably don't ipo if you want a complete exit you want an exit only for your other people do you want to look at a sale do you want to get a pe fund to come in and help take you to the next level and stay in the private domain and today that is even more relevant anand with the private markets are so deep yeah and today that's possible it wasn't even possible in year 2010 so i think that would be really important as you go so ahead. why why did you ipo same question back to you yeah no it's it's uh, i guess in indirectly i answered it um i think i was convinced as was rajesh at that point of time that the best is definitely yet to come uh we are not there uh we want to do lot more and an ipo will give us the necessary toolkit and fuel to achieve our dream so that was one secondly private markets weren't there at mm. that, that deep you yeah. know people cut checks of like our last round pre ipo from tiger was 20 million bucks our ipo was 80 million bucks that's what it was so i don't think anyone even fathomed someone putting in 100 200 300 million dollars in a private round it didn't exist so i think that was the second and i think at a very personal level there was a big thrill mm-hmm. so it was something which really uh, and maybe it was you know sanjeev had gone public i used to track other companies which had gone public and it was very motivating mm-hmm. and it was seemed something like why not why can't we do that too and maybe it's a moment but it's a moment that lasts forever uh, uh you know to be uh, at nasdaq take your company public and uh, there's no there's no bell by the way it's a buzzer <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny but yeah. to give that little ipo speech and then see your stock price people come in and trade and then stand at times square with your you know they put up pictures of the whole team we took the whole team i mean whoever so people had to pay for that ticket yeah. we didn't pay for anyone they yeah. paid for that ticket but then when they agreed to we paid for their stay <laughs> so we were about 20 of us who traveled from here yeah. i was just an incredible day awesome so hope many many of the listeners listening here i hope so hope too. to go uh, take so take it all the way yeah. and also you touched upon one thing it's about building something over the, over a decade or yeah. a long yeah, period of time terrible you know you build you've, you've done all the hard work yeah. create a brand which will last forever yeah and then from base camp to everest i'm, I'm sure you're going on that journey as we speak and uh, with the best wishes for the journey ahead really appreciate you taking the time thanks a thank, lot it's been a, it's been a pleasure thanks thank a lot man thank you Hope you enjoyed that podcast with Deep. He shared his journey in Make My Trip right from the beginning days all the way to taking the company public and some of the lessons along the way 
including the value of building an outstanding team having patience to see the ups and downs how to pick good co-founders and and also not chasing vanity metrics and a number of other such good lessons hope you can join us back a fortnight from now for the next insights podcast series from axel you can find more from the series at insightspodcast.in and feel free to reach out to us at axel_india on twitter to share your feedback thanks again mm-hmm.